You're listening to Shelf Talking, the official podcast of Literati Bookstore in downtown Ann Arbor. I'm Sam Krachenko. Later on, we'll journey into the multiverse with story writer Alexander Weinstein. But first, Grace Toulouse. In her memoir, The Body Papers, Toulouse takes an unflinching look at some of the darkest struggles of her life, including childhood abuse and cancer. Grace Toulouse writes eloquently about the most unsayable things, raised little fires everywhere author Celeste Ng. The Body Papers is a stunning work by a powerful new writer who, like the best memoirists, transcends the personal to speak on a universal level. Toulouse visited Literati this past December. I've been coming to this bookstore before I thought I would ever sell a book and I would dream about like someday reading here I would look at this author wall and I just couldn't even imagine it and so to be here tonight is is a dream come true so thank you literati for having me here um, I also want to mark today because it's my last book event. Um, I've been going since March, and I've been, I think I've done almost 100 events um, from like Seattle to San Diego to Miami, where I was last week, like all over the place. I feel like I've looked into the eyes of like the hundreds of people who bought my book and met every one of them. Um, And so it's really special. I didn't know that I would get to this point. I'm the kind of person who likes to sit by myself for like hours on end and read and write. So for me to stand up in front of you, I just didn't think that I could do it a couple months ago. Um, and so to me, this this day is a celebration that I've that I've gotten here, and it's really wonderful to see you all here. Um, so my book is a memoir, but as you heard with um, the review from um, Sisley, she calls it an essay collection because at times it was. I never thought I was writing a memoir. Um, What I was doing was writing about um, things that I thought were important and interesting to me. I wrote them because I had to write them. I went to graduate school to write fiction and to write novels, which I did. Um, I didn't publish any of them. They were totally failed, but that's what I was working on is fiction. And then... um, something happened, which is my niece, when she was two years old, was diagnosed with eye cancer. And that totally like shook my world. And I didn't, I didn't know what to do but to turn to writing and reading as a way to kind of cope with it. And what came out was an essay um, that eventually like was won a contest and then made its way into the book. Um, And so that's what kind of started me on this journey. And I started to realize, like, oh, there's so many ways that what I've learned in fiction writing and in scene writing and character building makes sense for creative nonfiction. The other reasons why I didn't think that I was writing a memoir is because I'd never, like, considered myself worthy as a subject to write about. I'd read a lot in my life. I mean, I had I went to the public library. I probably had read hundreds if not thousands of books by the time I was graduating high school, and yet I had never encountered a protagonist that was like me until I came across Max, Maxine Hong Kingston's The Woman Warrior when I was almost done with high school. Um, 
the only ways that I saw myself in literature was as a caricature or a stereotype or you know a joke or something to be made fun of. And so I didn't want to write about people that looked like me because I felt like that was my only option, was a character that was less than human. Um, and so it was a revelation to think that like I could write about people like me and that people would care. And even a year ago, like when we were getting the galleys ready or the early copies ready for the book, I still doubted and I still thought, I don't know who's going to read this. Like, I don't know why, you know, if readers would be interested or why they want to read about my life or any of that. And, um, and I've come to realize from, from doing this work and putting the book out into the world and talking to people that I was really um, misunderstanding the readership. All right, I'm going to read from um, something that's not in the book yet. It's going to be, when, when we have a paperback edition, it'll be there. And it answers the question about um, what was it like to publish this book and, and what did it mean for me. So many times when I was writing the things that became this book, which was probably over a series of years, about 10 years, I thought several times of stopping and giving up. It was just so hard and the return on investment seemed so insignificant. But what kept me going was thinking of what other authors had done for me with their books. Despite implicit and explicit messages over the years that there was no interest or audience for my work, especially material I was interested in, I stayed committed to my dream of being a published book author because I knew I was already so close and I had to try and make it the rest of the way and see this book through. So when I saw the call for submissions from Restless Books for the prize for new immigrant writing, it was like reading a description of myself. So I entered the contest and then I promptly forgot about it. By then, I trained myself to think of submitting my work as the success, not thinking about the outcome. I kept going because I thought of you. I imagined someday going on book tour to colleges and bookstores and taking a space like this to say that voices and stories from people like me matter. And so when I won the prize for, the new, for new immigrant writers, it came with a book contract and a promise to publish my first book. And the day that I found that out was transformational. People asked, like, what was it like to publish the book? For me, really, the change inside of me came when I knew that the door that I'd been knocking on for so long had been opened. So a few days after I got the news, I met with my publisher, Ilan Stavins, and one of the first things he said to me was, a book is a bomb. And I was so nervous at that lunch because I'd never eaten lunch with a publisher before, and I kept stabbing at my green salad without ever bringing the fork to my lips. And so when he said bomb, I calmed down. I imagined the honey-scented beeswax balm that my occupational therapist would use to massage my epicondylitis and my wrists. And so Ilan looked confused at me. He repeated the phrase, a book is a bomb. And then he said, you must have elephant skin. Are you ready for what will happen after your memoir is published? Family and other relationships will change. Oh, I had misinterpreted the homonym. Ilan meant bomb as in B-O-M-B, -B, not bomb as in B-A-L-M. I felt myself tighten up again and my eyes widened, but even in that spike of anxiety and fear, when I could have told my publisher that I had changed my mind, I was still certain that I had to publish this book. 
I'd been working on it for years and years, while sometimes also feeling gripped with terror, because at the very least, I was concerned about what people would think of me, but at worst, I thought they would abandon me. By the time I got the news that I won the prize, I had given up hope. I was writing as if no one except those in my writing group would read my work. But with the prize, the door to publishing had opened, and I knew I needed to walk through it before the opportunity was shut out from me forever. Last Thanksgiving, I saw my cousin, Ramon, who was an early supporter of my writing. At 14, I had been a bridesmaid at his wedding, wearing a chiffon purple gown and a crown of flowers in my hair. After a lifetime of feeling ugly and different, that day, I remember feeling so beautiful. And now I was sitting with Ramon decades later. He was a grandfather, and there were whispers that his cancer treatments were not working anymore. At the dinner table, he said out loud what we were all thinking but not asking about. He said, I am dying. Ramon was one of the first people in my family to pre-order a hardcover book, but I did the grim cancer math, and I asked my publisher to mail him a galley. Almost immediately, I felt nervous imagining my book beside Ramon at chemo and radiation. I remembered this quote by Annie Dillard that I would share with my students and tell myself as if, almost as if it were a prayer. And Dillard says, write as if you were dying. At the same time, assume you write for an audience consisting solely of terminal patients. That is, after all, the case. What would you begin writing if you knew you would die soon? What could you say to a dying person that would not enrage by its triviality? Did Ramon really want to spend any of his precious remaining time reading my book? I did not want to enrage him with triviality. After New Year's, Ramon texted me. Grace, I read your book twice, and every time I cried. I can relate to a lot of situations, especially now in this stage of my life. Sometimes someone close to you will hurt you. I am getting strength and learning from your book. I feel like I am carrying the cross for my family, and it's getting heavier every day. The next time I saw Ramon, a few months later, he could no longer communicate, and we took turns at his bedside. At his funeral mass, his brother talked about how my book had been his companion these past months, and I was grateful that my cousin felt my presence during what I can only imagine as the loneliest time of a person's life, fully conscious that every moment is a leaving, a once and for all. Not everything has been so wonderful. In the months after turning in the final copy edits while the hardcover was being produced, the old depression, anxiety, and PTSD symptoms returned with a vengeance, which I made worse by hiding from those closest to me because I felt so guilty about feeling such grief and fear right before this very good thing that I had been waiting my whole life was about to happen. Six weeks before I was supposed to travel across the country to start my book tour, I was on the couch with my eyes closed, shivering uncontrollably. I ended up in the ER with pneumonia. And during those fever dreams, my low oxygen mind felt certain that there was not a world where both me and my book could exist. I know how dramatic that seems now, but I thought I would die before my publication date. 
the air sacs in my lungs displacing with fluid as I silently drowned in plain view. This would be my punishment for telling my story. And yet, I didn't die. What did die was the version of me that wanted to protect people who did not deserve protection. What left me was any desire to smile and hide how furious I am about what had been allowed. People who could have stopped this did not. This is a fact that will haunt me for the rest of my life. Before I was even born, there were people who could have stopped the runaway train racing towards me, flattening me under its wheels, and yet they did nothing. Secondhand, I've heard appalling things that some people have said about me and my decision to publish this book, which I will not repeat here, except to answer their questions definitively. No, I did not want it. And as an adult woman, no one, not even my father, has the power to allow or forbid me to do anything, much less share the truth of my own life. At Porter Square Books, my local independent bookstore, the novelist Jenna Bloom introduced me at my launch with this quote by Muriel Reichheiser. What would happen if one woman told the truth about her life? The world would split open. My publisher was right. A book is a bomb. And if my book has done anything to chip away at the structures upholding inequality and suffering in our society by adding my voice, or if I've helped repay the debt I owe authors before me by helping one reader feel less alone in the world, I choose explosion again and again. Grace to Loosen. The Body Papers is out now in paperback from Restless Books. Memory erasure, holographic parents, and robotic children are the stuff of everyday life in Alexander Weinstein's universal love, whose characters strive to stay human in a world of ever more alluring, dangerous technologies. Literati was proud to host Weinstein's book launch, which he opened with a special request for his audience. Hi, everybody. It is so good to be here and celebrating the birthday of universal love with all of you. Um, when, when I first thought about, you know, it takes a lot to, to write a book. It takes a lot to dream a book into existence. And when I envisioned this night, I had a dream. This is the right time to say that, right? <laughs> Uh, that, I, that we would all join together and lift our voices in, in song and uh, kind of to celebrate together. And so I hope you'll join me in singing this chorus a couple times as a group together to sing from your hearts. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little love. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. 
It's the only thing that there's just too little of what the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little of one more. What the world needs now is love, sweet love. It's the only thing that there's just too little love. Woo! Thank you all for making my dreams come true. Um, here's what I'm planning uh, tonight. I'm going to read uh, a full story set here. I decided I'd choose the one that's set in Ann Arbor so that I can give some shout outs to, to things that you might know. And it's also the one that has uh, probably the most humor in the whole collection. Ready? Yeah. Yeah. Amen. Infinite realities. When we finally discovered the parallel timeline mouse, it was sleeping in a universe so onion skin close to our own that it existed in a parallel cage, in a parallel lab, where a parallel Donnie and I were doing similar parallel timeline experiments. I isolated the mouse on my monitor and dragged its timeline into our present one. Then Donnie and I looked at our mouse sipping water from the feeder. Okay, let's do it, Donnie said. And I hit enter. We waited, wondered if the earth would stop spinning, if matter would crack open, if alternative timelines would go spilling across the universe. But none of that happened. Instead, the parallel timeline mouse awoke inside the cage and sniffed his new universe. Then he crossed toward his present timeline self, and the two mice put their noses together. Did they know they were the same mouse, simply overlapped from different timelines? Were they behaviorally different mice? Might this shed some light on the whole nature versus nurture debate? Who knew we were opening the champagne? Donnie had first asked if I could write programs for transdimensionality back in college. We'd been smoking some heavy-duty indica, and I'd had a vision of a spider's web of infinite timelines, the program's layers as user-friendly as Photoshop. Yeah, I told him, I could do it, but he was, he was the scientist. It was up to him to figure out the hard quantum shit, like traversing string theory and locating multiple realities. Sure enough, eight years later, he did. We celebrated all week. Donnie splurged on expensive rum and I broke out my top shelf bud. We repeated experiments, recorded the transdimensional mouse, daydreamed about the Nobel Prize. And for a while, it was high times in that lab. Donnie worked on wave particle equations, leaving me to mess around with no new programming. I worked to isolate anything we had biology on. A single strand of fur from Donnie's golden retriever let me track infinite parallel versions of his dog throughout the multiverse. Things were going great, but as we broke through the fabric of reality, all I could think about was Aaron cheating on me with that woman at her stupid teacher's conference. I took bong hits after work and watched YouTube clips of cats riding skateboards to keep from dwelling on it. 
we'd met at the campus film club three years earlier. And when I first saw Aaron, it was like we were two alternate timeline mice finally together in the same cage. I invited her back to my place to smoke a bowl and we made out until early morning. By winter, we were spending every day together. And by the end of the school year, she invited me to move into her apartment. It was tight, but we made it work, pulling tubes and watching dumb horror flicks late into the night. There wasn't room for my equipment, so I worked on programming at the lab, cracking the codes of time and space while Erin studied education reform at home. Then her dissertation year started, and she stopped puffing altogether. I'd crawl into bed after work, ready to tell her about our latest breakthrough, but she'd just take my hand in hers, sniff it, and tell me I'd better not touch her with my resin fingers. As if that wasn't bad enough, after six months of no sex, she went and cheated on me with some rando. So yeah, I was super bummed when I should have been celebrating our mouse successes. Aaron was in bed reading when I came home from the 200th lab test. I went into the kitchen and looked for food, but dinner was already cleaned up. Any leftovers? Didn't make enough for two, she said, and looked up. Please tell me you didn't just walk into the kitchen with your boots on. Shit, sorry. I took off my wet boots and put them on the shoe rack, then grabbed some paper towels and mopped up the muddy prints. I microwaved a burrito, which started another fight. Why did I eat junk all the time? Why did it matter if we weren't having sex? Maybe it'd be sexy if I got a job. Um, I had an actual job. I was doing groundbreaking freaking science. Playing with mice for 200 bucks a week didn't constitute groundbreaking science. Well, maybe if she asked me about transdimensionality or spooky action at a distance, she might know how freaking awesome our discoveries are. Was I seriously rolling a joint right now? Why the fuck not? Then she was shutting our bedroom door and I was alone, puffing really good ganj out the kitchen window. I knocked on her door to ask if she wanted a hit and she told me to start looking for a new apartment. So yeah, I was hurt. I was heartbroken. I wanted our old timeline back, a reality where we wrestled on the couch, made love every night, and when the munchies hit, bundled into parkas and trekked to the shell station for cheese puffs. And no, it wasn't morally right or well thought out or even a plan. I was just really high and had access to Aaron's hair. <laughs> Seriously, I wasn't trying to fuck up everyone's lives. I only wanted to know if somewhere in the universe there was an Aaron who still loved me. Among the nine million things that could have gone wrong, I could have wrecked the time-space continuum, the Earth could have become a black hole, the program could have glitched, and alternate Aaron would have been trapped between parallel realities in a netherworld where particle trash and hungry ghosts passed her forever. But what I was hoping when I dragged one of her timelines onto mine was that particles would instinctively know how to make room for other particles, that a parallel timeline concert was also happening at the Blind Pig, and that Erin would find herself there seamlessly dancing without ever knowing the difference. So I closed my eyes and hit enter. By the time I got to the club, Erin was by the stage. Her hair was longer and her shoulders weren't slumped from typing, and when she turned and saw me making my way through the crowd, I had that same fluttering feeling in my heart like the first time when I'd seen her at the film club. Good band, huh? I yelled. Yeah, she yelled back. Did you see the first one? No, it's loud in here. 
Want to go smoke a bowl? Sure. Alongside the other smokers, we got high in the alleyway for the first time in over a year. Erin told me about playing guitar in a dub folk band and how she web designed to pay the bills. I told her about the mouse experiments, and she didn't make fun of me. And she, instead, she said, are you kidding? That's fucking incredible. And looked at me with such curiosity that it was hard not to blush. I stared at the firebird tattoo on her neck instead. Tattoos were something my timeline Erin hated. The bowl was cashed, and she dug around in her pocket. Should have brought more, she said. We can puff at my place if you want. It's in Chelsea, but I can give you a ride. No, you can't, I thought, looking at the garage across the street. I have to finish an experiment tonight, I said. How about tomorrow? Do you want to go for a walk at the Arb? I free up at four. Meet you by the gates? It's a date, she said. And she leaned forward, giving me a quick kiss, and the sudden softness of her mouth against mine was the most incredible feeling I'd had all year. I stood there, watching as she turned, thinking how there was a timeline where we were still in the alleyway making out, another where she was touring with a dub folk band, and yet another where she'd soon leave the club and call the police about her missing car. Shit. I hurried back to the lab, highlighted her parallel self, and returned her to her own reality. Then I took out a pad, and I wrote down every detail I could remember. The sound of her voice the warmth of her lips against mine, what it felt like to be wanted again. When I was done, I shut off the lights and went home to our apartment, where Erin was asleep, her own note on the kitchen table telling me to crash on the couch. I hadn't expected to fall in love so quickly, but at work the next day, I told Donnie I needed to go home early, and before leaving, I isolated the alternate Erin, dragged her timeline over my own, and hit enter. Six hours later, we were parked outside the empty lab, making out in my car while snow came down heavy against the steamed up windows. I led her into the building, showed her the mice, and finally highlighted her timeline and dragged her back over hers. We kissed one last time, the whole universe feeling alive, and then I hit enter, and it was just me, alone in the lab with the small lights of my computer blinking and our two mice sleeping tightly against one another. So I did what I knew had to happen in this reality. I called Donnie. Are you totally insane, like fucking sociopathic? Donnie asked when he arrived at the lab. He was still in pajama pants, his hair a mess, wearing a t-shirt with Einstein on it. You brought another human into our reality? Twice, I said. Do you have any fucking clue how dangerous that is? Kinda. Kinda? Donnie said, kinda? You could have imploded multiple realities. Precisely, I said, take a moment and process that. It worked. And I kept reminding Donnie that the first human tests had worked until he relaxed enough to stop panicking. I took the bottle of rum from the file cabinet and poured us two large tumblers while I told him about how Aaron and I had walked together through the arb, the branches covered in a light dusting of snow, how the softness of her jacket had rubbed against mine and her voice had been buoyant how she was completely different from my Aaron, who treated me as though I was an intruder in her joy. Can you speed up this story a bit, like to the part where you don't create an irreparable tear in time and space? I'm just saying she was real in this universe, like a perfect but better version of my Aaron. 
She took the joint we were smoking from my hand as naturally as if we'd been together for years. Seriously, we should be celebrating. I'll celebrate once I know you haven't fucked up the multiverse, Donnie said. All the same, he took a long sip of his rum and sat down at the desk across from me. It was incredible, I told Donnie. We were standing by the Huron River, the snow falling, her body buzzing against mine, sunlight making everything sparkly with winter, and she told me I was amazing. We kissed like it was the first time, the falling snow shimmering and beautiful around us. Wow, that's really fucking great, man. You risked imploding the universe for a makeout session with your girlfriend. Please tell me you didn't inform her she was from another reality. Well, I showed her the mouse video and told her she was the mouse, and she freaked. You quantum kidnapped me, she said. I tried to explain that the other her had cheated on me, and we hadn't had sex for a year, but are you joking, Donnie said and got up again. That means there's a person in another dimension who knows they've transcended realities. I figured it was only the right thing to do, especially since we were making out. But once she heard about the other her, she demanded to see herself. Fuck, Donnie said. Don't worry, they didn't meet. We just sat for a while in the car snooping on my place. It was getting dark and the snow was falling heavier and Erin just watched my Erin as she worked on her computer. She wanted to know if she ever did anything else besides work on her dissertation, like play guitar or smoke weed or go to concerts. I told her she didn't. Shit, so I'm just super lame in this reality? <laughs> then she didn't, then she said she didn't want to mess with my Aaron's head like I'd messed with hers. She just wanted to go back to her own universe. I'd felt awful as I drove her through downtown. I never meant to kidnap her or mess things up so badly. Ann Arbor was lit up with Christmas lights that hadn't been taken down yet. And it was super cozy and romantic, with couples walking along Main Street, holding hands. Erin was looking out her window at the guy in the corner, wearing a wolf mask, playing violin in the falling snow. I still don't get it, she said. If you were trying to get even with her, you could have cheated with someone in your own reality. Why'd you kidnap me? Because I never thought of it as cheating, I said, or kidnapping. I just thought of it as finding another part of you that still loved me in a subconscious string theory kind of way. Seriously, I, I don't want anyone else. I only want you. Wait, she fucking bought that? Donnie said. Bought what? It's the truth. I'm in love with her. Which is what I told her in the car. We were stopped by a red light with the pedestrians all passing, and she looked over at me and said, explain to me again why the other me isn't making out with you in this reality? I don't know, I said. Maybe because I smoke too much weed? Well, that's stupid. You should know that the other me is missing out because you're really hot. And then we were kissing again, our hands all over each other, until the guy behind us was honking because the light had turned green. So, moral of the story is your girlfriend from another dimension thinks you're hot, Donnie said. No, you're missing the point. Erin agreed with me. She said it was fucked up to make out with herself in a universe where the other her also existed. But she'd be willing to keep seeing me if I came to her. Donnie, I can be the human test subject now. Put me in her timeline and bring me back. I'll give you reports, you know, for science. Uh-huh. Since when have you been remotely interested in the actual science of any of this? I'm totally interested in science. Look, I took notes. I showed him my journal from the first meeting with Erin. What is this, a love letter? 
look, you're the one who knows how to take lab notes. That's what I'm saying. Use me as your lab rat. And then, knowing the scientist in him could never say no, I added, you really don't want to run tests? Donnie took a long drink of his rum before looking at me. What if I can't bring you back? That's not going to happen. You know how good my programs are. The experiment worked. The mice prove it. Aaron proves it. This is what we wanted all along. The ability to travel through multiple dimensions. Seriously, we're talking about the Nobel Prize. Let's just try it for science sake. Luke, Donnie said. He sat down across from me and tilted his glass in warning. You're an incredible programmer, but sometimes you're also a fucking idiot. Maybe you were successful in our universe, but who knows what damage you caused in that other dimension. So if we do this, you need to tell me everything from now on. No more lies about where you're going, no secrets. I'm gonna need to know if anything in that world goes wrong. Of course, I clinked his glass. Here's to infinite possibilities. We started with a couple hours. Donnie dragged me over Aaron's lake house, hit enter, and suddenly the lab was gone and I was outside Aaron's house in the cold. It had snowed in her reality and everything looked silvery and beautiful, the lake covered in a layer of snow, the branches all heavy with white. I walked to the front door, reached out and knocked, and there was Aaron, opening the door in fuzzy slippers. I was wondering if you were coming. Well, welcome to my reality. Aaron's lake house was a one-bedroom cabin that had a living room with a sliding glass door to a porch overlooking the lake. On the floor by the window was a steaming cup of tea next to her guitar. I took off my shoes by the door, and Aaron and I sat cross-legged on the warm wooden floor facing one another. I found the other you on Facebook. She held up my profile pic on her phone. There was my stupid cowlick, my jawline, my eyes, and my goofy smile. But this guy was way more buff and was standing beside a frizzy-haired woman and two boys who looked exactly like me. He was wearing a tank top that said, God bless America. I look like I never smoked a joint in my life. Want me to friend you? Please don't. Check this one out. Aaron swiped to an old photo of me at a weightlifting competition my meaty hand on a beefcake dude, both of us giving a thumbs up. Okay, that's super creepy. Kinda like if somebody grabbed you and put you in their timeline without asking? I'm so sorry about that. Can you forgive me? Yeah, Aaron said, putting her phone away and placing her hands against my thighs as she leaned toward me. I think I can do that. Donnie brought me back to the lab, and I gave him notes on traversing timelines, let him take EKG readings, and draw blood samples for interdimensional radioactivity. I asked him to increase my next visit to three hours, then five, and soon I was at Aaron's lake house most of the day. We'd make love and smoke joints, and she'd practice new songs for me. There was no TV at the lake, so we did other things, like hiking and cooking and making plans to go kayaking once it got warmer. Being with her let me see how much of a slacker I'd been in my own universe. I envisioned that other me slumped on the couch, my feet on the coffee table, littered with roaches and beer bottles, playing video games all night. And I felt embarrassed for the person I'd become. That evening, when I returned to our small apartment, Erin was in the bedroom in front of her computer. I cleaned up the kitchen and did push-ups in the living room, and we didn't fight or argue about not having sex. 
I just surprised her by cooking dinner, and Erin was happy to have the time to write. She'd left her earrings on the kitchen table. They were a small gift I'd found at the Tibetan shop downtown when we first started dating. Two turquoise teardrops. Seeing them, I suddenly envisioned a timeline where Erin was gone from my life, taking her earrings and everything else with her when she left. Hey, I said, standing in the doorway of our bedroom. Erin turned from the computer, annoyed, and I took a deep breath. I know I've been smoking weed and playing video games all of the time and probably haven't been that interesting to live with. Okay, she said. And I know you probably felt really alone because of it, and I'm sorry. I haven't been much of a boyfriend. I was hoping weed would help because we used to laugh and have fun, but I was wrong. So I just want you to know that I'd like to do other things with you, like take walks or cook together or, well, whatever you want to do. I just want to be with you. Erin took a deep breath and looked at me. And then she got up and crossed the room and gave me a hug. I felt the warmth of her body against mine, and though I'd been holding her at the lake that afternoon, this Erin felt completely new. I'm glad you're saying this, she said into my ear, but it's going to take time for me to believe you. I need to actually see you making changes. And though we didn't kiss, just stood in the light of our bedroom, I could feel her love again. And when she let me go, instead of pulling tubes or turning on PlayStation, I decided to do some more push-ups in the living room and get into shape like that other me in Aaron's world. Things got better. I'd see Aaron at the lake house during the day and spend evenings with the other Aaron at night. We cooked dinner at home and joke like we used to. And though we hadn't kissed yet, we hugged more. Meanwhile, in that other reality, Aaron and I spent hours naked in bed pleasuring each other. Afterward, we lay together like new lovers, talking about a future where we'd use Donnie's discovery as a travel agency to teleport us to a multiverse in Paris or Morocco. But it was also true that life was getting complicated. Now that things were thawing at home, Aaron was sending me romantic text messages that I couldn't answer for hours. I asked Donnie to field them for me. Sexting isn't in my job description, he said. You know what is? Quantum physics research. You should try it sometime. Please, I'll write you notes you can use. Just text her back so she thinks I'm here. Maybe everything could have worked out, the four of us functioning together across multiple dimensions. Donnie fielding texts for me, Aaron and me happy at the lake house while the other us healed our lives in the present. If only reality hadn't started getting weird. Like how Erin was humming a dub folk melody while she worked on her thesis, the very same song the other Erin had been playing for me earlier that day. Or how she began talking about getting a tattoo, a firebird on her forearm. And then there was the night when she woke me. I was still sleeping on the couch, the moonlight coming through the living room windows. And for a moment in my half-asleep state, I thought I saw the frozen lake outside and couldn't remember whether I was at the lake house or the apartment. Luke, Aaron said from the doorway. I blinked my eyes and saw her guitar in the corner of the room. Yeah, I said, rubbing my eyes. Can you come back to bed and hold me? So I got up from the couch and there was no sliding glass doorway, no lake outside, no guitar in the corner, just the snowy windows of our small apartment in our bedroom where I was finally being allowed back under the covers. I crawled beneath the blankets beside her and Erin wrapped her arms around me. 
I had an awful dream, she said. We were at this weird lake house, smoking weed, and we were so happy and in love, but you were cheating on me. I was playing this sad song for you on guitar about the moon and my heart, and then you got up from bed and kissed me, and she started crying. And I realized how much I've been missing you. She put her hand against my face. You dreamt about a lake house? Luke, Aaron said, wiping away her tears. I'm sorry I cheated on you. I felt sad, and I felt disconnected, and you didn't seem to notice, and you were just smoking weed all the time, and I thought you were becoming someone different, and I didn't like the new you. I understand, I said. But what about the lake house and your dreams? <laughs> Who cares? It was just a dumb house. That's not the important part. What's important is the feeling I had of missing you and loving each other. I want that again. I want that too, I said. And we kissed for what felt like the first time in over a year. Luke, she said, pulling away to look at me. What's wrong? It's like you're somewhere else. I'm right here, I said. It's just this hollow feeling. It's awful. Like this morning in class, I felt all this anger toward you, like you were cheating on me. Tell me the truth. Are you seeing someone else? Just you, I said. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> and then we were kissing again, our bodies warm against one another like the first time after the film club, her hands slipping beneath my shirt as we pulled each other's clothes off. I haven't told you, Aaron whispered, but sometimes when you're at work, I can feel you touching me, your lips against the back of my neck, your hands on me. She took my face and kissed me again. I've been missing you so much. I'm sorry for what's happening. I want us back. And we pressed our bodies together like we'd done at the lake house, the two of us feeling completely familiar and totally foreign from who we'd once been. I knew I should mention Aaron's dream to Donnie. It was the kind of thing he needed to know. But the next morning, Aaron and I woke up and we made love again. And when she asked if I could skip work, I called Donnie and told him I'd be late. Donnie was pissed when I got back to the lab. Dude, I don't know what's going on with you. First you complain about not having enough time in the parallel dimension, and now you're showing up late? I need you here. We're totally falling behind on the mouse experiments. It was true. For all practical purposes, I've been gone from the lab for weeks. Progress on the next stage was slowing. Don't we need more data? I asked. I've got tons of data. Seriously, you've got to stop messing around with your second girlfriend and get back to work. Oh, man, I said. That's really going to mess things up for us. I sat there wondering if there was a reality where both errands would fall in love and we could have a deeply meaningful threesome. <laughs> I asked Donnie what he thought. It'd be amazing, right? Right? Though, I guess it might feel kind of narcissistic. Still, if you didn't want to hook up with yourself, does that mean you secretly have low self-esteem? What do you think? Would you ever make out with yourself? Luke, what the fuck is wrong with you? I need you here in the lab to write new programs. We've got a serious situation on our hands. Have you even been reading the notes I left you about wave temporality and the dangers of collapsing timelines? Uh, okay, we're cutting you back to three hours. Donnie was, of course, right, but mostly what I was thinking about was how hard it would be not to see the other Aaron. Plus, I knew I had to tell her about sleeping with this reality Aaron, but Aaron just jumped on me when I appeared at the lake house and we stripped each other naked and made love instead. 
It was deep winter, the light already gone, and we lay in her bed, the candles flickering against the walls, watching the sun disappear behind the pines at the far end of the lake. Her hand was against my chest, her touch reminding me of all the mornings when we'd woken up in bed together in our other reality, back when we'd find each other beneath the blankets, feeling as though we were the luckiest people alive. I've been feeling strange, Aaron told me, her face highlighted by the glow of the candles. It's like I'm living these two different lives that can never match up. I can't text, can't call you, can only wait around for you to show up, and then you have to leave whenever your lab buddy calls you back. And meanwhile, the real you, the one in this reality, is just some married beefcake dude. What's that even mean? Is that secretly the real you? No, this is the real me. Well, this setup sucks. I don't want you living with some other me, sleeping there, eating together. I want you here with me in my reality. You said you like this me better, right? Can't you break up with that other me and move into my timeline? Well, I mean, I've got my family in the other world and my job. You could still visit them, get a new job here. I lay in bed wondering if that could work. Could I go back and visit my parents for the holidays, catch up with old buddies? And what about the other Aaron? The one I had photos and memories of, the one who'd been sending me happy texts again, my lover who I was falling back in love with. A small jewelry tree stood on the dresser and hanging from it was the pair of turquoise earrings from the Tibetan shop that I'd bought Aaron. Where'd you get those? I asked. I got out of bed and looked at them. They had the same small fleck of tarnish in the silver, precisely the flaw in the pair I'd given Aaron. Didn't you give me? Actually, let me see those. Aaron said. I brought the earrings to her. I can't remember where I got them, but they're really nice. I didn't mention the earrings to Donnie when I got back to the lab, but that night I searched and couldn't find them anywhere. Stop looking for things and come kiss me, Aaron said, wrapping her arms around me. And though I wanted to double-check the bathroom cabinet, she pulled me into the bedroom where we made love again. The next morning, Aaron asked me about her favorite coffee mug. We'd gotten it a year ago when we drove cross-country to see her parents. The one we got from Montana with the big heart on it, she said, rummaging through the cabinets. I couldn't find it until that afternoon when I went to get water at the lake house and saw the mug in Aaron's cabinet. Do you recognize this, I asked. No, maybe somebody left it when I had a party. I didn't say anything, but the next time I visited her, my PlayStation was in her living room. Why'd you bring this, she asked me. I don't even have a TV. I knew I had to tell Donnie what was happening, but I also knew if I did, he'd stop me from going back to Aaron's reality altogether. I figured I could take my own notes, keep track of things for another couple weeks, figure out how to come clean with everyone, and maybe discover a happy solution for us all. But it was becoming harder to keep track of my timelines, and one reality I lay in bed with Aaron, looking out our small window at the snowy street, remembering how we'd promised to go kayaking, only to realize that wasn't in this reality at all. Next, I was lying with Erin at the lake house, her room awash with the yellow glow of candlelight, and she was telling me about how she'd been getting interested in education reform, quoting direct passages from the dissertation my other Erin was working on. And then late one afternoon, we were standing on her snow-dusted deck together, watching the light wane across the lake, and she was remembering the movie we'd seen on the night when we'd met at the film club, a memory that was totally not hers. A couple of geese were honking on the far side of the water, the first returns from their winter pilgrimage, and they floated along the defrosted edge, the sky darkening with evening. 
Somewhere in another timeline, geese were probably returning to the same lake. Were they the same geese? Did they think the same goose thoughts? Was the lake house my future? That's when we heard the other Aaron banging on the front door. Who is that, Aaron said, turning from the lake and sliding opening the glass. Luke, Aaron, I know you're in there. Oh my god, that sounds like me, Aaron said. Then I was back in the lab looking at Donnie. The fuck, man? Sorry, Donnie said. She came by to surprise you and saw the sexting notes on my desk. I had to tell her the truth. She pretty much forced me to send her there. What? Put me back. Listen, Donnie said, this whole thing was not okay, like not for science or you or Aaron or me. Just send me back for a couple minutes so I can explain things. What's wrong with you? You cheated on two versions of your girlfriend. Neither of them is going to want to talk to you right now. You need to give them space. Go home, smoke dope, get some sleep, come back tomorrow. What choice did I have? The moment I clicked enter, Donnie brought me right back to the lab. So I walked home to her small apartment where I could see traces of Erin in the moments before she'd left to surprise me. There was our bed where last night we'd fantasized about her summer trip to Barcelona. There were the dishes from her lunch on the table, the drafts of her thesis by her computer, all glimpses of the life we'd been rebuilding before I'd ruined it. My PlayStation was gone, lost in an alternate dimension. All I had was some weed in the closet and a six-pack I picked up on my way home. So I opened a bottle and loaded the bong for myself and got high, alone, for the last time in what had once been our reality. The door opened early the next morning. I blinked awake, the whole world hurting to find the two of them standing in the morning light, looking like sisters. Lakehouse Aaron surveyed our messy living room with the empty bottles, rolling paper, ashy coffee table, and then she looked at red-eyed, hungover me, seeing me for the first time the way my Aaron had seen me for the past year. Get out of bed, my Aaron said, before shutting the door behind her so I could get dressed. When I finally sat across from the two Aarons at the kitchen table, the world was swimming behind my eyes. I can't believe you lied to me, Lakehouse Aaron said, and looked to the other her. Last night, I finally got to know myself, and I actually like who I am. I'm a good person, Luke, and you helped me stab myself in the back. She reached out and put her hand on Aaron's. I'm sorry. It's not your fault. That's just what he does. He's selfish and fucked up, Aaron said. Then she looked at me. I was mad at you both, but now that I've had time alone with myself, I'm just mad that I chose you again. But I love you. Isn't that like an even better testament of my love that I love all the different versions of you? Luke, my Aaron said, the only reason we are here is to tell you that this, us, is over. Can we talk about this? It doesn't have to end this way. There's infinite realities. What about the reality where all of us love one another? We're going back to the lab, Aaron said. Aaron's returning to her reality, and I'm staying here in a reality with you. So take your clothes, take your fucking bong, and get your stuff out of here. When I get back, I want the front door locked with your key under the mat. Where am I supposed to go? Some alternate dimension? Parallel universe? I don't care. Any reality that doesn't include me. I looked to Lake House, Aaron. I guess you're right about me coming to your reality. 
No way, she said. You're manipulative, self-centered, and toxic. You helped me lie to myself. That's seriously fucked up. I never want to see you again. And then she got up from the table, and I watched them leave the apartment, holding each other's hands as they disappeared from my reality forever. I took a shower, my head still pounding. Then I gathered my clothes and packed a box with my video games and dope before calling Donnie to help ask for help with moving my stuff. Are you joking? I'm here with both errands. They told me about the melding, the coffee cup, the earrings, your PlayStation. Didn't you think that might be important, like crucial fucking information? I can't help you move your shit. I'm a little busy trying to solve a quantum entanglement catastrophe that might implode reality. I'm sorry. Sorry? Dude, you were supposed to give me data, not lie to me so you could have sex with your alternate reality girlfriend. I know. I'll do better in the future. Are you high? You're off the project. The passcode for the lab is changed. Don't come back here. Then the connection went dead. Everything Donnie had said was true. I betrayed our work together, betrayed our friendship, betrayed both errands, broken the fabric of reality, possibly fucked up the multiverse irreversibly. There was nothing to do but call my parents and tell them I needed a place to stay. <laughs> and maybe it was that moment when I finally saw clearly that the person I was in this timeline was just a self-centered, lying piece of crap who'd messed up everyone's reality, including my own. In the end, Donnie was able to save our realities and fix the multiverse. I moved back home and I got a job, a sales job at the Apple store. I saw Donnie on the news last Christmas. His video's already gone viral. The two mice meeting each other again. Their pink nose is touching. There was Donnie with his new assistant, a guy who looked exactly like me, <laughs> just more clean cut and trustworthy. The YouTube clip already has more than a billion views, and the world soon is going to become way more complicated. Maybe in a dozen years, I'll have access to those programs I once wrote, and I'll be able to return to the night when I left our apartment drunk, stoned, and stupid enough to search for another errand. I'll tell myself to go home, to stop smoking so much weed, and to try to fix our relationship instead. Who knows if I'll listen, but I can at least try because I know there are countless timelines where I'm somebody good, parallel universes where I make the right choice and nobody gets hurt, infinite realities where I'm a better human being. And maybe if I try hard enough, one of those realities can also be this one. Thank you. Alexander Weinstein. Universal Love is published by Henry Holt and Company. Self Talking is produced by Hillary and Mike Gustafson with help from John Ganyard and Bennett Johnson. Special thanks to the band Pity Sex, which provided our intro and outro music. You can find those tracks on their album, White Hot Moon. You can also find a full calendar of Literati's upcoming events 
at literatibookstore.com slash event. Until next time, I'm Sam Krachenko. Thanks for listening.